Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. My name is Livia Bloom from the Museum of the Moving Image, and this is Alejandro Polanco and Ramin Barani. So I'll start by asking you, Ramin, how you, you got involved in the project of Chop Shop, how the story developed, and how you found the location, which is so amazing in the film. It's almost like another character. Um, I was editing my first film, Man Push Cart, and my cameraman had to get his car fixed. And um, <laughs> he called me and said, I'm going to get my car fixed, and you need to come, because you're going to like this place. And of course I did. And Right then I said, we're going to make the next film here. And that was in um, 2000, the winter of 2004. So did you already have the story at that point? No, not yet. But I knew that I wanted to do something there. And so from that point, I started going there. Um, The story grew out of that. Yeah, it it grew out of going to the location a lot. Um, While I was editing, maybe once a week. But then once Ampershart ended, I started going there all the time. And as I said, I started to notice... um, the young kids who worked and lived there, and it seemed like that would be the subject, should be one of these young boys. And then the story kept kind of developing from there. And Alejandro, how did you hear about the project? And I know that the casting, his casting process is, is pretty involved. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, he came, he came to my school, and um, I was sitting down at a lunch table, and um, he pulled me over to, like, he, he was talking to his staff, and he asked one like one of the staff, oh, who speaks Spanish? Which kids speak Spanish? So the staff pointed out to me, and he, like, he came up, like, they called me over to the side, and he asked me, oh, do you speak Spanish? And I was like, yeah. And then he said, oh, go ask that kid right there if he spoke Spanish. So I went, and I asked him, and he said no, and I went back, and I told Ramin. And then Ramin, he pointed, I don't know why, but he pointed to a ketchup on the floor, like a packet ketchup, because I was about to step on it. And he pointed to it, and I picked it up, and I threw it in the garbage. Didn't pay no mind to him. And, like, after that, he just called me back for an audition, and that's how it all started. <laughs> he was leaving out that when I first saw him, he wasn't sitting at a table. He was chilling with four ladies, <laughs> like, three years older than him, and seemed to be charming them quite successfully and uh, I like that he, he took um, well I thought if he stepped on that ketchup it would be humiliating and it would make a scene and um, I like that he took nonverbal directions so well <laughs> and um, that he completely ignored me after that and went right back to continuation of the, his life which tends to be how I make films which is there's no he knows I mean there's no calling of action or cut and half the time it takes the rest of the crew a while to figure out that me and my cameraman have started. Usually the sound guy who, he had been involved in the push cart, he's usually the third one to figure it out that we started doing something. And then little by little, other people come to understand and try not to get in the way. Wait, he left out one part now. Um, he, when we were shooting the movie, he made us do like 40, like 40 scenes, not just one, two, three. It had to be perfect for Armin. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, um, 
let's do like three scenes, see how it comes out. Then the fourth, like the fourth shot, that's it. That will be the shot. It's like we spent all day on one scene, moved on, ate lunch, and then worked on one another scene. So it was basically like two scenes a day, right? I mean, it, this a lot of the stuff that may appear to be documentaries actually, uh, it's usually thirty or forty takes, and there's not. You can, most of the scenes are done in one shot, and so I wanted them to be right. And when they got right, I would do ten more in case something magical happened. So, for instance, the pigeon singing at the end, which is so beautiful, that shot. Can you tell us about that one? Um, well, those pigeons belong to that guy Carlos down the street, who introduces them to Alejandro, and that's like one alleyway in eight or nine garages down. And those pigeons arrive at eight in the morning and wait on the posts and whatnot for that guy to show up at 8.30. They're there 30 minutes in advance. And when he walks there, they're already coming to meet him. And if you, like, rattle the lock, they'll come down. So um, I started showing up at 8 in the morning because he would get at 8.30, and I started to feed them and lead them down the road to Rob's garage. And that took um, three weeks. And then once I got them to come in front of Rob's garage... I started showing up like five minutes earlier because I knew the sun would ruin the shot. So I figured the more time I have before the sun goes up, the better. And I managed to get them to come at 7.45. (laughs) But they wouldn't come any earlier than that. They wanted to sleep, I guess. And um, I scheduled it to the dismay of the producers at the very end of the film, which for whatever reasons was challenging. And I had scheduled it over two days because I wanted it in, in one shot that you would believe that through a force of will he made these pigeons come. And I think we did it um, 50 takes, and it happened in one shot four times. I think the film is a really unusual portrait of work in America. Ali's character, despite the sometimes dubious legality of his tasks, he is incredibly hardworking and ambitious, almost puritanical American work ethic and Ally it seems like you're so good in this chop shop it seems like you you know had done that before um, well I've really like never worked before like so like this this movie was just like a challenge to me and like I really like cars but like I like I didn't know how to mess with them or nothing so like before we even shot the movie we spent like six months there and I worked on the cars and I learned how to sand paint and everything else, and, like, it's, like, I, I respect Rob because I could have messed up one of his cars, and he would have had to fix it, and that would have been more money for him. So, like, um... So he like, paid you to work in his garage? Yeah, it, it was, like, when, when everybody saw me pulling in the cars, like, before that, he used to give me $5 for each car. To, so every car I brought in was business for him, so I got $5 of that money that he got. He funded the pre-production. Rob, because he would go, he was for six months, he worked there, and then um, it was weird, on the second or first day of filming, we were doing some of the scenes where he's calling cars in, some of those scenes are really documentary, Um, I mean, those are cars that he's actually pulling in, and um, they're getting their cars fixed, and um, I remember after we would shoot it, he would keep calling them in, because he wanted to make that five (laughs) dollars, And um, someone in the crew, Gbert, I think, turned around and was like, um, Ramin, does Alejandro know that we've stopped filming? I said, yeah, he's just trying to make extra money. Yeah. <laughs> but you had had jobs. You had, you had sold those um, 
pastries and foods your aunt had made on oh, oh like um my aunt she used to cook and like i used to go downstairs and like sell them for her like but i don't really count that as a job because like i used to sell it to my friends and they used to buy it so rob is his real name and that really is his garage can you talk about yeah. that style because each each of your characters their name is their is their actual name yeah um unless someone's real name doesn't really work <laughs> but they all had really good names like Isamore, that's great you know like I couldn't come up with that. And um, so why change them? And it helps, again, it helps um, eliminate the wall between um, fiction and documentary, which I think is a line that doesn't have to be so clean, and I'm not sure there should be such a division. And I think that just helps that process. Um, like the new one I shot, the guy's real name wasn't good. His name was Red, which could be really great, but it sucked up too much energy. So his name in the movie was William. I, I really never called him by his real name, even from the first time I met him. And it took me a long time, now that the movie's done, to remember what that guy's name really was. You know, The, the film, actually, a, a lot of different critics have written about where it fits in terms of neorealism and other films that it references and other film movements. It seems to have roots with European filmmakers and films like The 400 Blows and The Bicycle Thieves, but it also seems to have... Middle Eastern um, influences too. Can you talk about some of the films and filmmakers that influenced you? Um, I mean, I'm influenced by a lot of films and filmmakers, even ones that our work don't really resemble. I mean, I was watching Fellini last night, and there's just no some two different worlds. Um, But probably more for my work, you know, Robert Flaherty and. Bresson, definitely, and Kiarostemi, of course. Um, my background's Iranian, and um, definitely the uh, Italian neorealist, sure, you know. Ulmi, Rossellini, uh, Flowers of St. Francis is one of my favorite films. How about you, Ale? Are there films that you were thinking of when you were making this film? Um, I don't really know, like, no independent film, so, like, like once... Ramin told me that we was gonna make a movie. I was like, "Wow, Hollywood!" And <laughs> and then like he told me it's a small movie, so like I didn't really know. Like I just thought it was gonna make it to the big film, but like it's a good movie, so I thank everybody out here for coming to see it. One more question, and then I'm gonna open it up to the audience. I wonder if you can talk about the cinematography. It's such a standout. The colors are so vibrant. The lighting is glowing. The compositions are so clean. And can you talk about the technique that you used to shoot it? When I first saw it, I was sure that it was shot on 35. Yeah, uh, Michael Simmons is the cameraman who shot Man Push Card and also my new one. And he's a a New Yorker, um, and we've known each other for, I think, since 2002 or three. He shot a film for Amir Nadiri, you know, the Iranian director. It was at Tribeca, and I saw it, and I met him afterwards. And from then, we became kind of colleagues um, and friends um, all my films have been shot on high def it's not shot on 35 um, but we're very vigilant about what is allowed in the frame and what isn't and he's quite skilled with the camera and then we have a really um, lengthy color correction process where the colors are great but in fact we've drained so much of the color out to avoid it from kind of popping all over the place the way video tends to do and and um, we avoid wi- wide lenses, but not even for video reasons. I don't. I don't really like wide lenses. I think it's um, disrespectful to the 
uh, people and the images in front of the camera. I think 50 millimeter is a good one, and most of this film is shot on 50 millimeter lens. Um, but yeah, Michael Simmons is very incredibly talented, and, and ver we work very, very closely together. Make a great team. All right, if anybody has questions, I'll take some minutes. Yeah, right here, I'll repeat the question. Too. I'm very curious about the scene in the, uh, when the kids are selling candy in the subway. Would you talk about that scene, how you got it, and did you have to get permission to film, and so forth? Can you talk about shooting the G-train scene in the subway? Yeah, um, we did, I don't really know how, somehow we did get permission, because it's really hard to get permission to shoot in a subway without like huge insurance claim, all kinds of things that I don't know much about. And somehow we did. The film office has really been nice to me, and they got it for us somehow. And um, we did the scene with Ale and Carlos. Actually, that scene, in addition to the whole film, we shot it on a handy cam in advance of making the film. Um, so him and Carlos and me and my cameraman would shoot them selling candy on the train to real people, and we would film them like this close doing it so they would just forget all about us by the time we came to make the film and so they kept the money from that time and when we shot the film they were they would you know they kept the money that time too so they were yeah mm -hmm, they're real people that that's like a great thing about new yorkers is they don't they've seen so many cameras they don't really care <laughs> i'm amazed still like that woman who's not even once does she look into the camera or even care Maybe no one asks any questions either like why is there a camera and five people following <laughs> They just bought their candy and went, that's amazing, you know. Yeah. Thank you, because well, I was like, like New Yorkers, yeah. you know, like they allow these things to happen. Can you talk about that scene, Ali, what that was like for you? Um, well, first, like I was scared because like, I never sold candy on a train, and they, I'm not shy, but it's like when you talk to people and I'm like, oh, they're going to say something because we have a camera. So they, I was like, oh, I'm scared. So then... Like, the first car, I was really, like, I was scared. But then, like, it just, people was buying candy without saying nothing. So I was making my money. So then, like, it, it didn't really bother me. But then when we went to the second, like, when we went to the second car, I was more comfortable doing it. And, like, the first time without, when, before we were shooting the film on the Handicam, um, that was when we made $35. Like, we both split $35. I was like, I want to do this again. Like, I made money. They were really excited for that scene. They kept, when are we going to do? Another question from the audience. Right here in the black shirt. The dialogue is so remarkably natural. Um, I'm curious to know what portion of the characters are real people as opposed to uh, real people. Are trained actors or not trained actors? And um, how much of the dialogue was The dialogue is so natural. How much of it was improvised, and are, how many of the actors were professional versus non-professional? I mean, the only actor in the film really is Ahmed, and he was never an actor until he was in my first film, Man Push Card. Um, maybe there's one, the guy in the very end, the John, like he was an actor, because um, that's kind of a trickier part to find someone to do. Um, but no, Ale, Carlos, Rob, all the main characters, they would never studied acting or been in a film or they had never been in front of the camera until we started putting them in front of the camera for a long, long time. The dialogue, um, I never showed them the script, but there was a script, a very detailed one. And th in the rehearsal process with him and Izzy, for example, um, I would tell them what the scene was about and what, the, what, kind of what they had to do. 
and then I would tell them the dialogue. Okay, you say this, then you say that, then you say this, then you say that, you say this, you say, and they would remember enough of it to get the point, and then they would they would start doing um, scenes. We would rehearse them, and I would film all of them, and little by little, their own words would replace some of the things that I had written, and then the best of these things I would transcribe and incorporate into the um, script, and then they would have to memorize those improvisations, which sounds really complicated, but that's. Like in the script, it doesn't say, like he says, you're, he w- in the script it was like, your sneakers are fake, and then she would say, no, they're real. Well, she said, no, they official. That sounds really good, and I don't know how to s- say that, so then she had to say that every time. You know? Or like she said, um, guys like girls' names better when they're talking about the van. I thought it was great. And she had no idea what the film, she, to the, until we saw the film for the first time, she didn't know what the rest of the film was about. She only knew her scenes. I remember when we watched it, she was like, you stole the... Yeah. You remember? Because she didn't know. And at that point when she came up with that line, I hadn't told her about the prostitution element of the story. So I thought it was a really interesting line. And so those things started to stay. Or name five serials. They, the kids had that. And then I was like, okay, you have to do that every time. And so then those became part of the rehearsals. What was that like for you, Ali, not knowing what was coming? Um, like, I didn't know, like... It's like when he wrote the script, I was like, all right, I'm ready to, like, memorize. And then he was, like, during the, like, auditions, he told me that I don't say action, I don't say cut, I don't say nothing like that. You never see the script, I'll tell you what to say. And then, like, sometimes words just came out of nowhere. Like, they just came out, like, out of our mouths. And he, like, instead of his words, he put our words to make it seem like, we, like, we were really talking, but he, he wanted to make it more, like, out, like, basically us talking, not him. Another question here in the hat. Did they show this movie in your school or in front of your classmates? Um, Have they shown this movie in your school in front they, of They never showed. Um, well, the principal, he, he said that he was going to take the, the, like, the school grade by grade to see the, the movie, but... Um, we never saw it like in a class or something like that. Like we never saw it in a class. Nope, never it, saw it. it I'm sorry. It's opening in New York on February 27th at the Film, at Forum. Film Forum, and I've heard it's a great place to take ten of your friends. <laughs> and if you have kids in school, I've been told you should encourage the principal to take all the kids to see it. Actually, I'm really curious for, and we're trying to, with the um, distributor and with the Film Forum, we're trying to reach out to schools to encourage them to bring kids to see it. Um, actually, in Cannes, we were really lucky. The premier, Kiarostami and Agoyan showed up and were incredibly congratulatory. And Agoyan is the one who told me, whoever buys this film, tell them they should market it to kids. He says, I have a kid, and I want my kids to see this film so they can understand what they have and what they don't have. And I thought it was a really great idea, and so I've told them, and they're pursuing it. And I really want kids, especially um, kids that are in kind of um, more affluent schools and whatnot, to see the film so they can understand what else is happening like five blocks down the street, you know. What was that like in Cannes with Karastami? You mentioned that. I mean, um, it was pretty amazing for us because we went to sit down and he was sitting behind us, which is kind of like terrifying because you assume he's watching all the mistakes and then... um, the film ended and it was a dead silence 
and the film ends the way it ends, and we're nervous wreck because in Cannes, if they don't like your film, they will let you know very quickly. And then the credits came, and they started clapping, and it turned into a kind of a s ovation, and they turned a spotlight on, which we didn't know, and I didn't know what to do, so I picked up Alejandro to block the light, <laughs> and they clapped more. <laughs> and um, yeah, Kiarostami was, he hugged and kissed us, and it was very kind of important for us. Another question from the audience. Did you have to get a release from people when you filmed in the subway? You have to get releases. Yeah, it was me, the cameraman, the sound guy, the assistant camera, and him car, I think, yeah. and Elliot. And two people were trailing us behind, and whoever we ended up filming, they'd be like, would you please sign? And some of them were like, no, and some of them said yes, and then the ones that said yes, there were options, at least in editing. I mean, we filmed for hours, and we picked the ones that seemed to work. Another question right here in the red jacket. The question is, uh, in Iranian films, the, the questioner has observed that many times you have children in very adult situations. Can you talk about that? Um, I mean, not to simplify the answer, because there could be many reasons, but um, one of them is because with children's stories, it's easier to avoid certain um, censorship issues. Um, I mean, like Kiarostemi, he made, I think, one film that involved, like, a married couple, and then he realized he never wanted to do it again because how do you film a, a man and a woman in their own house and accept that the woman has to wear the veil because it's a movie? So he said, well, just better not to film it. Um, and because he was one of the forerunners of... Him and Amir Naderi were some of the forerunners of introducing kids into cinema, another reason was he at that time was working for the Institute of children and education and whatnot and so he got funding to do projects about kids and so he made movies with kids but about the relationship between children and adults in the film can you talk about that a little bit I mean I think it's pretty complicated um, because sometimes Ale's a younger brother an older brother sometimes he's an adult sometimes he's acting like a you know like a child sometimes he's acting like a jealous boyfriend, sometimes like a dad. I mean, he seems to have to shift so many different ways. I mean, he's negotiating deals with adults on, you know, fixing a car and doing it pretty well. And then the next second, he's, you know, throwing grocery carts or he's enjoying the base. So it's very kind of, he's in a tough situation and he has to kind of be older than his age. And I like that he's very slippery, you know. He has to survive, so nothing can kind of make him go down. He always has to come back with a joke or a, we talked a lot about that like how to keep his character light and how to what he could, what responses he could come back with that would keep him going forward. Even in the end he comes to his sister with a something to make her smile, you know. What was that like for you? How, did you did you think about it differently when you were acting with a kid or when you were acting with an adult? Like I saw it like all like all the same really cuz like at some points like I was acting really like childish like, playing with her and that, like, name five cereals, that's, like, and then all of a sudden I have a job and I'm, like, I'm trying to negotiate with people to come in into this shop and, like, we'll fix your car the best out of everybody else. Like, I'm, so I'm negotiating, I'm a kid, but I'm negotiating with adults. So, like, it was, like, every time I changed, I felt like when when I had, when I was, like, an adult, I had to be more, like, more, like, um, 
had to talk more, like, sophisticated to them and, like, negotiate it with them more and convince them. And then when I was, like, when I was playing or something like that, um, like, I was really acting really childish, hitting her, playing with her, like, grabbing her leg in the beginning. And, like, I was always trying to make her smile. But when it was time to be serious, I was serious. Did you did you film in order? It's my dream to film in order, but please, someone who's incredibly rich, let me do that next time because <laughs> it's financially so hard to do that. I mean, I'm shooting in 30 days. You know, I mean, most, you know, modest budget independent films are shot in like 14 days. I don't know how to do that. Like, I think it's, you know, not gentlemanly to shoot a movie in 14 days. Or you should be a genius, and I'm You can't do I'm 30 not. takes, that's for sure. You cannot do 30 takes. I don't know how to do that. I mean, I wish I had three months, and I would definitely, I would shoot in, in order. I mean, I, I wish I could do that. At the end, the prostitution scene, you said there, there was something about that you wanted to describe? Oh, yeah. He wanted, well, we did a bunch of takes of that, too, and they were quite good. I mean, but it's a really tricky scene. Yeah, the, you know, it involves him walking that long distance and coming there and, and um, we had a few good takes, but there was something, just something missing. I didn't know what. And um, he knew no matter what happens to keep going. We had talked about that so much because sometimes I may change things and never tell people what, what the change is, and they have to just keep going forward. Uh, and they know what the point of their, what their point is in that scene, so they have to keep going. And so I took Ali back to the truck. I said, don't forget, no matter what, keep going. I went back, and we had... Um, we had, we had a fake gun for some scene that we never used it. And so I gave that guy in the car a gun, this gun, and I told him, get, take Isamar, put it, you know, hold her like this with the gun to her head. And then Isamar, when Ali comes, you'd be really freaking out. Like, you know, like it's kind of already a scary place. And so they said, fine. And then they came, and I think Ali got really startled. And he, he let that guy have it um, pretty bad. And that was the take we used. Was that like for you, huh? Like, he was like, when he told me, oh, go ahead, keep on going, like, like I didn't really know, like, why would he come over here and tell me? I thought he was going to, oh, go ahead, all right, we're going to shoot another take. But he came over to me, and I, well, I was sitting at the, like, I was sitting by a truck, and, like, he came over to me, he was like, whatever happens, just keep on going. I was like, all right. I walked all the way, I walked to the car, I walked around, like, and I thought it was just like the same scene, and then I seen the gun. So I was like, I just, I don't know, like, I just blanked out, and I just opened the door so fast, and I grabbed the guy, like, I didn't even know what I was grabbing him by his shirt, his head, his, his hair. I don't know what I was doing, but, like, I grabbed him, and I, like, I just pulled him, and by accident, I made him bleed. At the at the end, I made him bleed by accident, and like it was the like that was just an amazing shot. I'm gonna stay away from you from now. Uh, question right here in the blue shirt. How do you work with the editor? Um, I edited myself. I had an editor for Man Push Car for one day, and he said the f film was not going to be any good, and that I have no respect for the audience, and he left. And so I looked at the computer. Someone had bought it for the, like as an investment into Man Push Card. I didn't know how it worked because I'd never used a Mac. Um, I was like, you know how, do you know how a Mac works? You push a button on the keyboard to eject the DVD thing. 
I was like trying to move it with my hand. To, I was like, oh man, I, I didn't buy a DVD. <laughs> they didn't come with it. And so um, my brother sent me an online tutorial. And I watched it, and then I just started editing. And on that film, I had two people that really helped me in terms of philo- philosophy of editing. It was two filmmakers, Lodge Kerrigan and Amir Naderi. And they taught me something very valuable about editing, which was whatever is not good, admit it to yourself, no matter how important it is to the film, and just throw it away. And then try to make a film. Even if it's the most critical scene in your opinion, just throw it away. And now with whatever you have left, make, make your film. And then Amir really helped me on frame-to-frame editing, like, you know, exactly what frame and why. And he, t- he showed me that on Pushcart, and it was, he, that, what he taught me there really helped me because this film is really frame, like frame-specific when the cut is, depending on what's in the frame, like a movement or a flash of a light or something. Um, but the first one was the biggest lesson. Looks like you figured it out, huh? I'll take one more question um, in the middle. Yeah. Alejandro, um, what other projects would you like to be in? And if not, what would you like to study? Um, like before before um, I did the movie, I wanted to become a baseball player because like I grew up playing baseball and like that was my sport. But then like the movie inspired me to become an actor. So I want to like continue acting. And your upcoming project? Um, The new film I shot in my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And it's about a um, Senegalese taxi driver, 30 years old, very friendly, very humble kind of guy, um, very compassionate guy. Um, And the very first scene of the film, he's in the middle of a conversation. The movie just begins in the middle of a conversation with a 70-year-old Caucasian man named William who's offering Solo $1,000 to take him to a mountain called Blowing Rock, which is two hours outside of Winston-Salem, in two weeks on October the 20th, and he does not want to come back. And so the driver, whose name is Solo, decides he has that amount of time to become his friend to change his mind. We'll be looking for that. And the Film Chop Shop opens on um, February 27th at Film Forum, so you can let your friends know. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.